You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to the second episode of the North American Francophone Podcast. I'm your host, Claire-Marie, and today I'm going to talk to you about cooking a three-course meal from an 1840 French-Canadian cookbook. When I told a couple of friends that I was going to be cooking from an 1840 French-Canadian cookbook, they kind of raised their eyebrows and said, Now wait a minute, are you going to try to replicate a Julie and Julia? Well, yeah, that was a great film, but I don't have enough time to cook all of the recipes from this cookbook just yet. But I was particularly excited by the prospect of making a three-course meal entirely from a historical cookbook. Now, on top of that, because my friends were saying, well, are you trying to replicate Julie and Julia? I decided to add even a little twist, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But how do you navigate an 1840 cookbook? Now, that was something that was extremely difficult for me at the outset. I found three recipes from the back index of the cookbook online that I spoke about in episode one. And I said, well, these sound fairly interesting. I'd like to try to make them. One of them was soup à l'oignon au lait, or onion soup with milk. The second one is bœuf bouilli à la canadienne, or Canadian-style boiled beef. And then the last one was extremely interesting to me. It was an omelette with rum, or omelette au rhum. So a flambéed omelette. I had never heard of that before. But when I got to the actual recipes, I realized that they weren't recipes at all, or at least recipes that I was familiar with. The style of recipe that I'm familiar with right now in 2019 is to see a list of ingredients and then a step-by-step one, two, three, four, five way to make something. Preheat your oven to 350 degrees. Make sure that you have all ingredients at hand. No, These recipes more or less said, cut up some butter, throw it into your warm frying pan, but make sure it doesn't burn, and then take as many eggs as you think you'll need, mix them with milk, throw it into your frying pan, keep mixing the eggs around so that they don't form any bubbles, and then turn it around, make sure that it's cooked well on all sides, make sure that it has nice browning, and then pour your rum in, set a flame to it. It was very loose, and for someone in the 21st century, it's difficult to navigate. It really is. So I took the time to sit down with the recipes, become friendly with the recipes, and sort of envision, how can I bring these historical French-Canadian recipes to life with some of the cooking knowledge that I have already? So knowing how recipes work and knowing the different steps that most modern recipes have... I was able to understand the recipes in this cookbook because of my previous knowledge with cooking. And I imagine that was the case for most people who were going to use the cookbook. None of this was going to be out of the blue. None of this was going to be a first-time cooking experience. You probably had a parent at home or someone in the community who had taught you how to cook or someone that you had observed cooking before. So you can imagine, oh yeah, well, I remember that Marie has 12 children, and she needs to cook a lot for them, so the amount of eggs that she uses as compared to me with only three kids is going to be way more. And those kind of social connections were very important when cooking. You also have to remember the origin of the word recipe when you think about cooking. 
According to the online etymology dictionary, the word recipe has its origin in the 1580s, and it wasn't used to describe food. Rather, it was used for medical prescriptions. It comes from the Middle French recipe from the 15th century, and from the Latin recipe, or to take. So it means that you're taking the advice of a doctor or instructions for preparing it. Now, the instructions could be for preparing food related to the medical prescription, because medical prescriptions as we know them today have changed so much. But this is the first recorded sense, and the original sense is surviving in the modern day in the pharmacist's abbreviation RX, right, for the recipe. However, the word that we use for recipe doesn't really originate from the word recipe. It originates from the word receipt. Now, this would make a lot of sense. For example, tonight I went to the grocery store. I'm getting ready for Thanksgiving. And my receipt looked more or less like the recipe for my cheesecake. Um, and indeed, receipt means the act of receiving, but it also means a written acknowledgement of money or goods received from around 1600. So if we try to put ourselves into 1840 Quebec, we're going to be going to some kind of market. If we live in the countryside, we might be going to a farmer, we might be going to a country store, and we're going to have a receipt of goods for what we're cooking. Oftentimes, even today, People at the grocery store are going to be asking you, oh, well, what are you cooking? Oh, this looks good. I'm sure that you're going to include this in XYZ. And that's why the word recette or receipt was used before the word recipe in English. Now, most of us know the difference between a recipe and a receipt today. And according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online, the sense of the word receipt that we know today, that of a statement documenting the receiving of money or goods, began in the 16th century. And by the 17th century, both words were referring to cooking instructions. While recipe is the preferred word for that meaning today, the memory of being handed down a receipt for cookies does get handed down like a beloved recipe from older generations. So if you want to envision what the 1840 Canadian cookbook is like, imagine it to be a collection of receipts, things that you bought, things that you need, things that you need to prepare, but with a little bit more explanation. Whereas modern-day recipes walk you through a process including instructions, including an ingredients list, the measures, and the temperatures that you need. That's the major difference between this cookbook and a cookbook that you could buy today. So now that you're a little bit more familiar with the terrain of an 1840 cookbook, let's talk about how I started to choose the recipes that were most interesting to cook from this 1840 Canadian cookbook. I looked through the index and I said, well... What do I recognize? What might be interesting? And what is different? And the first thing I came across was soup à l'oignon au lait. Now, having milk included with onion soup was something I wasn't familiar with. Maybe you include a little bit of cream from time to time, but I really didn't know what that recipe was going to taste like. I'm very familiar with soup à l'oignon gratiné, where you take a lot of cheese and you broil it on top of the onion soup. But... This seemed a lot different, so I bookmarked that one. The second recipe that I noticed was the omelette au rhum, the rum omelette. It just seemed so intriguing that I had to do it, and with so few ingredients, it felt like I could almost do it right away. And then finally, I decided on the main dish. 
The main reason I chose the bœuf bouilli à la canadienne is because it had the word Canadian in it. I wanted to see what was different between this cookbook and others that had been published before it, like the 1739 French cookbook that made its way across the Atlantic. The main difference here was going to be the seasoning, but I'll get to that in a moment. To prepare, I put all of my ingredients out on my counter in my kitchen so that they could get to room temperature, emulating a little bit more of the era before refrigeration. I also used all cast iron or enameled cast iron in order to replicate some home cooking from the 1800s. The main difference that I had was the modern convenience of having a stove and a range, and also not having to control a fire or other things around the house at the same time as I was cooking. So the recipes in the cookbook gave timing that was far too long for a modern cook. That was the first thing I noticed. It said to cook things for an hour or two hours. It didn't need that, particularly for the beef stew. But if you imagine having kind of a weak fire or something that was blowing out your fire in your household, you might need to rekindle the fire. An hour sounds about right to braise beef, as an example. The second thing that I did was read the instructions to myself out loud And just so that you don't have to sit through listening to recipes, I'm going to be posting the recipes in the original French to my social media. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Francophone, or you can find me on Facebook by searching the North American Francophone Podcast. And if you enjoy what I post there, you might want to also navigate to patreon.com slash North American Francophone to help support this podcast and things like cooking recipes from an 1840 cookbook. But anyway, I'll be posting the recipes in French first on my social media and then providing translations to you in the next couple of days so that you can make this yourself. But on top of that, I'm going to include an ingredient list, making it a lot easier. Despite making the recipes a little bit more modernized, these recipes took longer than I expected. I think the main reason was because they required such a low heat on the stovetop. It specifically said on a low flame for each one of the recipes, and I can tell you that the results were delicious. I'm always told here in Virginia that slow cooking everything is the best, and I think that the French Canadians in 1840 would agree. They were slow cooking everything from soup to stew even to their omelets. And that was probably because of where they were living and how their homes were set up, but also probably a choice. Because you can imagine if you have a fire raging in your home, you can cook something fairly quickly. But they didn't want browned food. They wanted to have food that soaked up flavor of the sauce that it was in, or that was nice and tender. And I can tell you that the beef in particular came out so tender that it was falling off of the fork which was delicious. And to be honest, a bit unexpected from boiled beef. But I do think that the technique, braising it first a little bit, and then boiling it with other ingredients, including carrots and onions, just made it have a beautiful aroma and a delectable taste. I think out of the three recipes that I chose, the hardest to deal with was the onion soup with milk. The main reason was, Every time I wanted to heat the milk, it almost started to scald, so I had to stir it a lot. I first made sure to caramelize the onions and then put a little bit of salt and pepper with them, 
and then I put in some milk. And despite keeping my stovetop at the lowest possible temperature for my soup, it still wanted to scald and boil up if I wasn't stirring it all the time. So you can imagine that people in a household where this type of onion soup was cooking, they had to really share the duty of stirring that onion soup. And particularly if you were working in the countryside, somebody's working outside, somebody's working inside, and plenty of people are going to be very tired. So doing this activity was not going to be fun, but fortunately it created a delicious result. But as I was cooking it, I realized... Aside from the milk and from the onions and a little bit of seasoning, there was nothing else going into this onion soup. When you say French onion soup to people, at least in the 21st century, you're automatically going to associate it with a soup that has beef broth, it may have some white wine in it, it may have some cognac in it, and for the most part, it's going to have cheese broiled on top. This soup looked nothing like it. It almost looked like it was a chowder, maybe a strange kind of gazpacho, or even a vichyssoise. But it wasn't what I personally thought was a French onion soup. And so while I was cooking this, I said, well, I have extra onions. Why not make another recipe that most of us would be familiar with on the side? And it's almost comical that I did, because when I was buying the ingredients for these recipes, I bought beef broth because I thought, well, at least one of the recipes is going to take this, because I'm very familiar with it in either the French onion soup or the Canadian stew. But it actually wasn't in either of them. So to play on a little bit of my friend's jokes from earlier, the Julie and Julia cooking through the cookbook joke... I actually cooked a Julia Child recipe for French onion soup on the side, and I included the gratiné, or the melted cheese on top, the broiled cheese on top, that you see with the regular French onion soup. And I was able to taste test them side by side. If you did a blind taste test of the two soups, you would not be able to recognize the original 1840 French-Canadian soup à l'oignon au lait. It doesn't taste anything like the modern-day French onion soup that we're so accustomed to. And yes, there were two recipes for the soup à l'oignon in the book. The other one just included water. So for me, I thought that that was more of like a onion soup mix that you could find in a Campbell's can. It wasn't French onion soup. Overall, there wasn't any recipe that could replicate what we have in our minds as being French onion soup in that 1840 cookbook, which I found very surprising, but also very exciting because, in essence, I was reviving a recipe that may not have been cooked for many years. Who knows, there might be someone out there who still cooks this at home, and I'm not familiar with that. If you are, please write to me and, and contact me because I'd love to talk to you about it. But it was the first experience I had with it. And to finish it all off, I decided to make the omelet. I made a very small one-egg omelet because, again, these recipes said, use as many eggs as you think you'll need. So I thought I needed one. And I did that because I wanted to have something very small at the end. I ate a little bit too much during this meal. Um, but it was delicious. It was a new experience for me. But I didn't just want to have this experience for me and then talk about it on my podcast. I wanted to share it with someone who really had never experienced French-Canadian cooking. And I found a perfect candidate in somebody who grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, 
and whose perspectives I thought would add a lot to the conversation because he had never had French-Canadian cooking before and has had only a few experiences with what we would consider to be France-French cooking before this interview. Joining me today on this segment is James Reed, a graduate student at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Before the historical cooking session, James had never tried homemade French-Canadian food before, so I was very excited to see his reactions to each dish. And so joining me here, James, when you tried the first dish, the soup à l'oignon with milk, what was your initial reaction? Was it anything that you were expecting? I was surprised. It came out uh, extremely well. Uh, this was definitely something that I could have received at a restaurant today. And, you know, given the age of that recipe, I'm really honestly surprised. Yeah, I definitely would agree with you. The dish was just very rich. It almost reminded me of a vichyssoise. Creamy, delicious, full of flavor. And it brought out the onions in a way that I wasn't expecting. Now, um, we actually did pair that with a more modernized recipe. I used more or less a Julia Child-style French onion soup from the 20th century. In comparison, between the two soups, which one did you feel conveyed more of an onion flavor? Which one did you even prefer? So between the two soups, um, I found the more recent one, the Julia Child's inspired recipe to be obviously a little bit more sort of beefy, whereas the one with the, the onion soup with milk brought out, like you said, the onion flavor, and it just balanced really well, paired really well. I also think that I preferred that soup because uh, being that I was raised vegan and then vegetarian, even though I do enjoy beef stew and French onion soup to a certain extent, I really enjoyed just the milk and oniony flavor that came out in that specific one. I'd like to get your opinion on the other two dishes as well, um, since we had technically four dishes, but three dishes from the 1840 French-Canadian cookbook. The second dish, the bœuf à la canadienne, or the, the beef. This was the beef stew. This was really the main part of the meal. It really tasted like and replicated my own family's French-Canadian stew. Now, since you're somebody who grew up vegetarian, uh, you said vegan first and then vegetarian, I'm wondering, with your first experience of a French-Canadian stew, and particularly an 1840 recipe of the French-Canadian stew, what was your initial reaction? And had you ever had anything like this before? So my initial reaction was that I thought it was very good in terms of how it was prepared. Uh, I personally wanted to add a little bit of uh, black pepper and salt to mine, but I do that to a lot of food anyway. And in terms of how this compares to other foods that I've tried, I've had a few stews. Uh, the first stew I had that had meat in it was actually in Ireland, so I've had a handful here and there. But yeah, I, I did enjoy it. It was very well done in terms of you know, the meat was prepared well, the vegetables were mm -hmm. all very palatable and tasted yeah. good, you know, in terms of how well they were cooked. So yeah, it was impressive to see a recipe that tasted so modern and that it could be something that I would expect to be served to me today in a restaurant. And were there any flavors that you were not expecting from it? I didn't specifically think of any flavors that stood out to me as something that I didn't expect because I don't really have a good frame of reference for 
typical stews to know what they do or don't contain. Um, as I understand it, though, uh, one ingredient in it was clove, which yeah. stood out. Yeah, that was really the main ingredient for me that stood out as not being part of my family's recipe. And um, it, was, it was kind of surprising. It added a dimension that I enjoyed and would do again, actually. And uh, now the final one, the final question I have for you is the most interesting recipe in my personal opinion. It's the omelette au rhum or rum omelette. Again, I had never heard of this recipe before. This is a new one for me. And just so the listeners are aware and remember, this recipe takes an omelet, just a plain omelet. You can add a little bit of cinnamon or sugar, and then you take rum and you flambe it on top. I had never seen anything like this before with an omelet, of course, with crepe Suzette. This is very commonly done. Uh, James, what was your reaction to this, and what was the flavor you picked up? So I'm probably not the best person to ask because I've always been a little bit picky about uh, eggs. But I must say that the flavor was rather mild. I was a little bit surprised in terms of at least the egg flavor as it came out. I could definitely see this being a dish that I received today at, uh, whether it's a diner or for dessert or something, Mm. I would not be surprised if I were served this. Um, Again, it wouldn't necessarily be the dish that I would pick to order, but there was nothing wrong with it. Now, in contrast to what you've just said, I am a big fan of eggs and of omelets. For me, the flambéed rum just added another layer of complexity to all that an omelet has to offer. So if you are a big fan of omelets and of eggs, I highly recommend this. And be sure that you know how to flambé, that you've checked on YouTube or have read about it, learned about it enough that you don't set off any fire alarms or set yourself on fire. I don't want that to happen and (laughs) for you to blame me for it. But um, knowing the proper technique to flambé an omelet, I, I do think that it's going to change a lot for you. And again, thank you so much, James, for having joined me today on the show. Your perspective is very much appreciated by me and I'm sure by many of the listeners since your own experience is probably closer to many of theirs. So thank you for being willing to share in this experience with me and I hope that you explore more French-Canadian cooking in the future. Yes, I really did. And thank you for having me on your program. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Episode 2 of the North American Francophone Podcast. If you happened to find your way here because of an interview I did with Radio-Canada Alberta in November 2019, thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Until next time!